At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Decades ago, I started growing food in my front and backyard, and I realized that my mission in life is to inspire and empower others to grow their own nutrient-dense, healthy, organic food. Because of this, a lot of people have come to me with their gardening questions over the years, and that got me thinking, what if we put together a community that would help budding gardeners blossom? So I finally made the idea a reality with my Urban Farm U member program. Each month, your membership includes three live online events, a monthly class, a chit-chat with an expert, and a monthly coaching session, plus access to the experts on our member page and a significant discount on our signature courses. I'm deeply committed to transforming our global food system, and I do this by empowering you to grow your own food. The Urban Farm Membership Program is a simple way to get going. Please join me in transforming your food system today. To learn more, go to urbanfarmmembership.org or text membership to 33444. That's urbanfarmmembership.org or text membership to 33444. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the Grow Your Own Food Revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Sean and Beth Doherty to talk about their experience with homesteading. Sean and Beth have been farming together since the 1980s, For the last 20 years in eastern Ohio, where they manage 24 acres designated by the state as not suitable for agriculture. That's got to be an interesting story. Using intensive grazing as their primary source of food energy, they raise dairy and beef cows, sheep, farm-fed hogs, and a variety of poultry, producing most of the food and feed on the farm. Concerned that farming is so often dependent upon multiple off-farm resources from feed, fuel, and fertilizer to water and electricity, their ongoing project is to identify and test the means by which farming was done for centuries with the minimum of off-farm inputs. Their research has led them to identify grass conversion, especially the daily conversion of grass into milk by dairy ruminants, as a key to whole farm sustainability, combined with the integrated nutrient feedbacks that are possible with a community of diverse animal and plant species, domestic and native. They're also the authors of The Independent Farmstead, Growing Soil, Biodiversity and Nutrient-Dense Food with Grass-Fed Animals and Intensive Pasture Management. Hey, you guys lucked out. You got a forward by Joel Salatin and it's a Chelsea Green title. Congratulations on that, and welcome to the show. 
Thank you very much. We're looking forward to it. Great to be here. Absolutely. So I shared a little bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Well, we met back in the 1980s, and both of us had a conviction about the beauty and goodness of living in the country and raising our own food. We also had impressions that I think a lot of people share that it just can't be done anymore. You can't really farm anymore. But Mm -hmm. we were convinced it sounded nice and we'd go play at being farmers anyway. (laughs) So when we got the chance, we both grew up with dads who raised beef in the country. This Mm. is Texas and Oklahoma. We had professional dads with acreage in the country. I actually grew up on ours. And so we're used to big animals and big gardens and canners. Mm-hmm. I tell people sometimes our only real advantage is we're not afraid of big animals or canners. And when we got the opportunity to buy a piece of property of our own, it was what we could afford, which is really terrible, trashy land. And we thought, well, we'll buy it, you know, fix the house, sell it again, and buy something that really looks like a farm. Mm-hmm. Only... Um, you know, having more time than cash, it was taking us a while to fix the house. And in the meantime, we couldn't even get into the woods. Oh. With the, there were, the briars were so bad, so uh-huh. we bought and tethered some goats, and we bought and put out some chickens. And gradually we found we were farming a piece of land that we thought couldn't be farmed. Isn't that right, Sean? Yeah, we, at one point, uh, so we did the normal things that people do. We did chickens, and we would go to the feed store, and we'd buy the chicken feed, and mm-hmm. we would do that. And then a neighbor of ours had pigs that he butchered himself, and he invited us to be a part of that. And so, again, conventional farming, and we did pigs with him, and that was kind of neat. And then the big step for us was somebody offered us a cow. Oh, wow. There's just no way that we could do a cow and we didn't know what we were doing and we really didn't have flat land when we we recently gave a talk similar to this at the mother earth news conference and we were reflecting on the fact that our farm had no flat place on it bigger than a swimming pool it oh has God. no flat place on it bigger than a swimming now, pool now fortunately we have purchased some land next to ours uh, we were borrowing that for a while and that's where we would wouldn't we decided, okay, let's go ahead and get the cow. We talked to our neighbor, and we ran the cow over there, and then, and then fortunately we had bought that. But it was kind of a serendipity, kind of gradual process, but the cow made so much difference because the amount of food that the cow made through milk fed our family, fed it could feed pigs, it could feed chickens. It, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were still buying a lot of grain, going to the feed store, and the next big aha moment for us was when we discovered intensive rotational grazing through Joel Salatin, mm-hmm. uh, through the soil and water conservation people here, and by moving that cow carefully over this ground, we were suddenly able to start to recover this pasture and the cow was now eating for free it wasn't it was not costing us right to feed the cow and what a what a significant jump it was for us that that's how people used to farm of course uh, you know they did something that didn't cost them so when everyone said to us oh you can't farm anymore it's too expensive 
suddenly we're saying, wait a minute, I think there's another way. Reading backward, too, we were able to look at what we had been doing uh-huh. with the dairy goats. We'd been milking goats for five years before the cow came into our lives, and um, how we were using them to clear land for a garden, clear space for getting back into the woods and bringing out firewood and the wild nuts that we harvest there. And we realized, you know, ruminants, unlike most classes of animals, when a ruminant is pastured properly, she's actually improving her own food source as she goes. Mm. So, for instance, take goats. We're especially anxious to um, share with people our realization that land, fertility in land is a mutable quality, and you don't have to pay for it. Because once you start working in concert with ruminants to restore a piece of land, you're building fertility as you go. Um, how, does that, how does that work? Tell me more about that, because that's a fascinating concept. So ruminants. Ruminants are really wonderful animals. They are the largest class of herbivores, I think, on the planet. We're going to leave ocean, plant, ocean animals out for a minute mm-hmm. on, the, on the hard surface of the planet. And they have four-chambered stomachs that let them make use of cellulose in a way that isn't possible for human beings, but even isn't, isn't mimicked in the other herbivorous animals. Mm-hmm. They ferment and break down their plant foods with biota, with, with microbes, that when the animals defecate, when they manure, when they dung on the, on the land, they're adding <clears throat> huge doses of plant material teeming with, seething with the microbes of plant decay mm. so that a cow is a walking irrigation hydrant and fertilizer spreader. And as long as there's hmm. a human being there to manage her movement uh-huh. in imitation of, of the, the migratory movements of huge herds of ruminants in the past, she prunes her plant material, whatever her food source is. Right. With goats, it's going to be brushy, tall stuff. With sheep, it has more to do with the things we call weeds, like tall, broadleaf forbs. And with cows, it has more to do with grass, although those species do graze across that range, mm-hmm. all of them eating some of everything. Um, <clears throat> when we move them across so that they're using it efficiently and not coming back to the same place, until the grazed species have had time to recover from being grazed, what actually happens is more roots are set down, more top growth happens, more fertility is stored in the soil. I mean, there's a whole, there, there are whole books to be said on the subject of how um, grazing prunes top growth, which causes root dieback, which leaves plant material deep below the soil surface to feed microbes, so that they can chelate more minerals, so that more grass can grow. <laughs> nice. It's uh, it's a it's a beautiful synchronicity. Natural, n- a natural process, absolutely. Yeah, right. So you use the term intentional rotational grazing and uh, intensive, and intensive rotational grazing. Intensive rotational. It's also grazing. intentional. Oh yeah, that well exactly, exactly. So and I think you just touched upon it when you were talking about the animals and the ruminants. You you mentioned cows, uh, goats, and sheep. Right. right. And what what we do is that every twelve hours we move cows to a new paddock. Uh, and the thing that you know, if we're explaining this at at different conferences that we go to, 
one of the things that we, we try and make clear to people is the paddocks don't have to be very large. Uh, so one cow can be on a paddock that's about the size of uh, our living room, dining room put together, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for 12 hours. So, so this Smaller. has a lot to say to the urban farmers who are all, or the urban people who are all raising their, or, you know, pasturing their John Deere's on their yard, you could do an awful lot with not a very big, you know, with an acre or two, um, you could easily run some goats or even potentially a cow. Um, There would be some time when you'd have to supplement with hay, but used well, keeping that cow in a tight paddock and then moved every 12 hours, uh, and then it won't get back to the same paddock, you know, till 30 days later or Mm -hmm. 60 days later, that's grass has had a chance to recover we we eventually when we first started off with the cow we didn't know about this we turned our cow loose he ate she ate from wherever she wanted to and it was you know really bad on the pasture right as soon as we started controlling what where she could go the pastures improved tremendously, tremendously. and now we have hillsides that were rock slate just horrible that are now pasture wow um, in fact, calling anything that we started out with pasture is just <laughs> that, that's fond delusion on our part. Uh-huh. Actually, the land where we do most of our grazing, when we came in, it had been abandoned for some time by the people who owned it, who were actually our neighbors but getting elderly and couldn't manage it. And in time, before in the five years or so before they started letting us use it and then a few years later sold it to us, they let in some not very meticulous loggers who used that space as a staging ground and a dumping ground as they took all the decent logs off the hillside above. Uh-huh. Then they let the highway department come in and take the top soil for land, for, for backfill behind a retaining wall oh, wow. that holds our county road up. And then they got us on it. And ignorant that we were, we turned the cow out and she ate what she wanted and it was mostly dirt. We'd walk out there and look around, come about the middle of June, we'd think, is there anything left for her here to eat? Yeah. And we'd throw out some hay. Um, in the first year, so this you've got a picture. This is, the state of Ohio is absolutely right that land like this is, this is not what people usually picture as as having agricultural possibilities. Most of it is a steep slope. Right. And, and, the few cleared acres are mostly canted up a lot on one side. It's very steep. Uh It's pasture now, but it wasn't at the time. And the transformation that happens when herbivores, especially ruminants, cross over a piece of land, manuring on it, and then leaving it to regrow is just incredible. We've never sowed anything over there. Well, actually, I think I threw out a little bit of clover seed I have had left over from somewhere else, uh-huh. but I threw it out on a finished pasture. We've never sown anything over there, but it's a marvelous, mixed, diverse pasture of tall Kentucky bluegrass and timothy and orchard grass and lots and lots of medium red clover and Dutch white clover. It's a beautiful pasture, but it was a disaster. 12 years ago. Wow. Is that how long you've been on the property is 12 years? We've been here 20 years. We've been managing a cow on it for, say, 15 of those years. Mm -hmm. 
And we've actually only been grazing it in this way for about 10. Wow. Maybe not even, but maybe not even that long. It might have been nine years. But the transformation was so rapid, especially the first two or three years you're watching just an incredible, an incredible um, shift in the plant species and in their yeah. availability. And as the dirt gets covered over and right. disappears, we had areas that were rocks that you just, as you walked on them, you just slid on the rock. Uh-huh. Now all of that's been picked up, covered over with dirt and then grass so that there's no, you can walk right up it now. In places wow. we, we'd created rock piles that we intended to move later down into the barnyard to fill in wet spots. You can't find the rock piles. They've been buried. Nice. In grass and new topsoil. And are you still just running one cow? Oh, no, no. This, this is running some sheep. And the other thing that's happened is, uh, and this is another thing that we really promote, is the use of, of land around you that's not being used. Oh, yeah. So we have a convent a mile and a half up the road, uh, and they... They have 50 acres of pasture land, and then they've got a lot of wooded land. And they really didn't know what to do with it. They would have a farmer come in and brush hog it periodically. So we said, what if we brush hog for you? And we took hay off of it for a little bit. And then gradually we, we warmed up to saying, well, how about if we ran some cows over there? So the majority of our large cows now are all over there. Uh, and then what we have on the home property are some sheep. Uh, on the hillside, mm-hmm. and then on the lower area, we run our smaller cows. Our bucket cows, our weanling cows. Mm. Bucket bucket cows, what's that mean? Our, our, the young calves that have been taken off their mother. Oh, yeah. Um, calves that are born on the farm are left on their mother for a certain number of weeks, and then we actually buy in the little dairy bulls that in a, in a commercial dairy are are um, usually pretty morbid. They don't live long. They're, they have very low value. These are little Jersey bulls. Mm-hmm. We'll buy in maybe four of those a year, raise them on real milk, and fatten them for beef the next year. Oh, got it. Cool. So I, I'm listening. We're, we're 15 minutes into our talk here, and I'm fascinated because this content and, and your story goes back really before we knew who Joel Salatin was and what he was up to. So how did you figure this out? I, it wasn't. Joel was a lot of figuring it out. So we we actually saw him at a talk in Ohio. We met it, We met him in two thousand eight. Uh huh. Briefly. He 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 spoke there and he was talking about this. Then we were watching online. So there are people out there like Greg Judy. Uh, Alan, Alan Savory, Savory mm-hmm. some of those people who were watching a little of this online. This is at the very beginnings of this. And then our own Soil and Water Conservation District is really on the cutting edge of this uh, in a surprising sort of way. Nice. Uh, and they were, they were having some early meetings where they said, we're going to talk about this intensive rotational grazing. So we went to the early meetings and... And what we've been doing since then is doing what they do is a monthly pasture walk where you go out and you look at how other people are doing it. A lot of the other people are commercial people, but there's still, every time we go, there's something to learn Mm. from what they're doing, either with water or with, uh, you know, how they're moving the cattle. But one of the things that's very fascinating is it's constantly changing. And even if you go back and look at Joel, he 
the, the things he said early on are, are now beginning to change a little bit. And, and one of the things, discoveries we've made is that, of course, it's changing because his pastor is changing. As our pastor is changing, right. we have to do it very differently. And it all depends on what the spring happens to be like and what the fall happens to be like and, and when you get your drought. And you're constantly changing the way you're doing it depending on what nature's throwing at you. Yeah. So it becomes much of, uh, uh, much more of an art form than a science form. Yeah. That, that art form, I think, too, comes into how we end up farming the way we did. Both of our grandfathers were farmer were, were career farmers on little bitty um, dry farms in Texas mm-hmm. and Oklahoma, and they raised big families on excellent food and didn't have a whole lot of money. We carried with us into this into this attempt, you know, when, and in the beginning we didn't really know what we were trying to do, um, a sense of the beauty and, and even the artistry of integrated farming, of multi-species integrated farming. Mm-hmm. And we've had lots and lots of opportunities to see things that don't work and to ask <laughs> ourselves, how did, how did our grandparents do this? There was no feed store on the corner when right. Sean, when Sean's par- Sean's great-grandparents went into Oklahoma in the land run. How did they do this? And um, one, one of the resources that we've found very helpful is a library, an online scanned book library at Cornell University, oh, at yes. their Albert R. Mann Core Historical Literature of Agriculture Collection. And it's a bunch of ag books going back into the 1600s. Um, I had occasion to wow. have some contact with the director of that right. collection, and he said that they they didn't just go back and pick the books that looked right to them. They actually went back, Cornell and a bunch of other universities, went through old ag resources and looked at their references. Who who were their sources? Oh. Who did they reference as experts? They came up with a list of books, and then they went all over the country looking for hard copies in private and public and university libraries, scanned them, and now they're available to anybody who wants to, you know, click in the right letters on their computer. Oh, my gosh. You can go scan them. So, you know, Thomas Shaw, Feeding Farm Animals, great resource for what did people feed a hog before the feed store was there. And you realize, oh, hogs didn't eat grain back then unless there was something wrong with the grain or unless there was no way of storing it for some, you know, like... Right. Cribs are all full. You feed them corn. They ate roots. They ate the the number one food for most farm animals. Time out of mind has always been dairy. That's because grass is the biggest crop on any mm-hmm. natural farm, and ruminants are the best way of harvesting that and the most immediate way they can make those nutrients available for humans and other species right. is via the dairy. So dairy waste was a re- and w- before refrigeration, milk was not a shipped and stored product. Right. Cream could be harvested, turned into butter, and the butter could be stored for good periods of time. And cheese could be made, but both butter making and cheese making produce large amounts of excess dairy waste. Yes. Which would go to waste if it wasn't for hogs. Hogs are your number one storage unit on the farm of excess nutrients. And who knew? Right. Exactly. Well, so hogs will eat anything. Yes. And, and what we do with ours is the things that everybody's 
so proud of. I, you know, I compost that, all of our kitchen scraps and everything like that. All of that stuff that used to go into our compost now goes into the pig. And then the pig mm. composts it yeah. for us. Yeah. So speeds up that whole process. And then we've got good manure and fertilizer ready to go onto the garden way faster than the compost ever could do it. Wow. Yeah, it's a great system. In a grass-based farm where mm-hmm. most manure, that all the ruminants are manuring in the, in the pasture, yeah. all of the poultry are manuring in the pasture, it's really nice to have one animal that's shut up on bedding for part of the year yeah. <laughs> so that they can be generating compost for the garden. Yeah. Cool. So I, I'm really excited. I ha- I'm, I've got your book in my hand, The Independent Farmstead, and I have to congratulate you. You have a foreword by Joel Salatin, and this is published by Chelsea Green. Ha- yeah, we're really, really proud of that. Wow. That's, that's a major wow. Congratulations. How, how did that happen? Tell me about that. Well, about, I don't know, over the years, and especially starting four or five years ago, as we had aha moments in our own farming, we'd look at one another and say, gosh, I wish there was some way to share that. So we actually started a blog, which we use more like a website, just to post those moments. And we sort of kept track of them, and every once in a while we'd look at one another and say, we need to write a book. Mm-hmm. And but periodically people would, I'm yeah, sorry? We went, we went to the Mother Earth News Conference and spoke there. And as we were talking about it, we were talking about feeding the farm from the farm uh-huh. and, and the things that we had learned. And one of the first questions out of one of the, speak, uh, the people, the audience members, was, where's the book? <laughs> <laughs> so we thought, okay, we really do need to write this book. Yeah. And, so. and it would happen that people would contact us or, or put us in contact with third parties who would express a lot of discouragement that can sort of be summed up by the statement, it just costs too much to farm. But we never had any notion of there being an audience for a how-to book for what we do, partly because farming is so individual to the farm community and to the land it's on, and partly because there aren't a whole lot of people beating down our door or even living within 100 miles of us that we know of that are saying, could you please give me a how-to book on how I can get up at 5 o'clock every morning and milk a cow? <laughs> no failing, 365 days it's in a year. year. Yeah. So we actually, I left home for three days to take a course in artificial insemination of bovines. Uh, oh, and I spent a okay. lot of time sitting in a hotel room, and I wrote the first three chapters of a much more chatty book, uh-huh. trying to just relate in a cheerful, helpful way some of the some of the things that we discovered over the years that made a difference that actually were answers to those people who say you just can't farm anymore because it's too, too expensive. expensive. Yeah, and we thought we'd start at the top, the best books, the books that we reference all the time: Elliot Coleman, Joel mm-hmm. Salatin were coming to us from Chelsea Green. So we thought, well, we'll start at the top of the list and we'll send out and we'll get rejections and eventually maybe somebody will pick it up. And we emailed in a proposal and they got back to us within 24 hours. Oh, my gosh. And they said, gosh, this looks like a great book and we think you could find a publisher for it and we think it'd be really good, but we actually want to know if you'd write a different book for us. (laughs) Uh We want you to write a much bigger book on your methods. 
And we were flabbergasted because we really had no, even though we'd been attending conferences and speaking at conferences, uh-huh. both uh, in, in this region, it's the Organic Farming Association and Mother's News Fairs, those people come from, you know, it takes, there are many, many people there, but they've come from a large region, and we really yeah. had no sense, as Chelsea Green did and does, that there's a, a large and growing audience of people who are concerned for their for their food security and yeah. for their food their food sources mm-hmm. and would want to know how to do this. Uh, I, I we were the only thing that equals how amazed and delighted we were is when the book was finished and Chelsea Green got back to us our our editor Michael McTeeves got back to us and said we want Joel Salatin to write the foreword. Oh no. <laughs> and I think we spent the next two days, you know, about three or four times a day, we'd look at one another and just mouth at each other. Joel Salatin <laughs> writing our foreword. Wow. We've met him since and Yeah. And got on <laughs> we had a lovely conversation. I think we spent two hours over lunch. And we're just as delighted now as we were when yeah. we first learned that he was to write that yeah. forward. Well, congratulations. That's, uh, Thank you. You know, you know, the cool thing, speaking to interest in a book like this, I, I've been involved in urban agriculture for 41 years now, and I'm only 55. Wow. So I started when I was really young. Yeah. And for the first 38 years, it was an uphill battle. Yeah. And I've really noticed in the past two or three years that it's like the snowball's rolling downhill finally. It yeah, we, we feel like that it's really starting to catch on. I think people are becoming more and more aware that the food system is really broken yeah. and that the food system is very likely the, the cause for an awful lot of the illnesses mm-hmm. that are just su- surprising, the, the levels of diabetes and the levels of, you know, what is all that? Yeah. And I think, uh, I think that some of this is food. And uh, we know that the food we're eating, you can't buy. You can't yeah. get it at Kroger's. You can't get it at Walmart. You can't get it anywhere. At Whole Foods, you can't yeah. get it. Yeah. Yeah. We, we wanted to write Trader a book Joe's. that says nobody eats like we do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In addition to that, I think, I think there's a growing awareness among a minority of people, but I think we're approaching a tipping point that our present food sources are not only not sustainable, they're pretty much balanced on a knife blade with fewer than 2% of the nation even listing farming on their taxes and the vast majority of those, like 90%, being people who are actually losing money doing it. There's a very tiny number of people who are in charge, who who have ownership of the land and are in charge of those activities which we used to... They used to be farming, and now they're just food production. Right. And I think people are beginning to be aware that having all your ship, all your food shipped in from thousands of miles away yeah. is uh, pretty precarious. <laughs> yeah. So I'm doing a lot of media events here in the next few days, and they asked me to go to the grocery store and get, a, uh, get some fruit that's not in season. So I picked up a, a navel orange. Mm-hmm. From Australia, and oh my I, God. right, and I'm in Phoenix, Arizona, right? Why? This, yeah, exactly, exactly. And the sad part is, is that we're less than thirty days out to be able to pick ripe navel oranges off of our trees right here. So wow, 
And and we all, if you're 55, then we're in the same age range. Uh-huh. We all remember a time when fruits in the grocery store were seasonal. Yeah. They were sufficiently local that you did not buy blueberries out of season. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I'd like to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. Oh, gosh. The opportunities for stories like that come... Um, way too often for any, you know, for me to be comfortable sort of sitting back <laughs> and feeling like we've got it figured out. The yeah. number of, of de- you know, dead zucchini corpses over which I have mourned and hawk-struck chickens that we've oh, had to yeah. put in the compost bin. One that comes to mind is, it has to do with the way farms and especially farming with animals on whatever scale is not something that you can set set moving like clockwork and then go away and know you know that you've got that system all synchronized and it's going to go forward the way you expect it to. We started out on this land with three Nubian goats, two mm. does and a weather, and we would tie them out on the hillside. We tried rope and they chewed through that. Of course. We tried chain and it got kinked. So finally we ended up with airline cable with a swivel at either end, we'd attach it to a collar on the goat, and usually we'd put it on, a, put it, attach it to a center block or a stake in the ground, and we'd put our goats out on the hillside, in the places that most needed, you know, briar remediation. They were right. they were wonderful at it, and we went from not being able to see back into our woods, or move back into our woods, um, to having, you know, a clear view into the woods and some idea of what was back there. Uh-huh. But I remember going out one day about noon, having put the goat out and given her a bucket of water and left her to do her thing, coming up about noon to go feed the chickens and hearing this odd noise up the hillside. And I looked up, and the goat's kind of lying down. I think, I wonder what that funky noise is. And it happened again. I could see it was coming from the goat. Uh-huh. And when I got up there, what I found was she had been grazing at the lower reaches of the, the area Uh-oh. accessible on her tether had fallen, and simply her weight downhill was keeping her at the at, at the extension of the tether, and she couldn't get her feet under, yeah. so she was gradually slipping down. When I got to her, her face was swollen, her tongue Aww. was hanging out of blue. And, you know, I got her up, and uh, after a couple hours, things subsided, and she was fine. But it was a, it was a really... It was an eye-opener about what can happen to animals if you're not really faithful, not just about checking on them, but about envisioning their environment and what they're capable of. Right. We've we've more than once had friends lose goats because they tethered them where they could goats climb and they jump. They tethered them where they could go over a fence or over a tree branch at the extension of their Mm -hmm. tether and then hang themselves. And they hang themselves, yeah. Yeah. I've... We have chickens here at the urban farm, and, uh, you know, there was a few years ago where I had one water source, and it was summertime, and that water source got spilled over. Right. You We've know. had the same thing happen yeah. here. Yeah, so it it takes a special consistency in in dealing with animals like that. Yeah, I, I think it's one of the great advantages of the grass-fed and, and the intensive rotational grazing is that you're with that cow 
every 12 or hours. whatever animal. Yeah. Uh, you know, oh, as right. a, when we grew up, uh, when I grew up, we were weekend farmers. Mm. So every weekend we'd go out to the farm and we'd see what, you know, and, and check on the cows and stuff like that. But this thing of being with them more and more so that you're frequently out with them. And, and for us, uh, another advantage is uh, they're up at the convent where the nuns are. And they will call us and say, the cows are loose or something like that. And yeah. we can, we're a mile and a half away, so right. we can run up there and take care of them. But that kind of interaction with the animals, and I think it's also with dairy animals, you know, that we're milking them, Twice makes yeah makes for a really good relationship between the animals yeah. and, and, the, and the manager. And us. And, you know, Joel talks about the, the real importance of, being the manager for these animals mm-hmm. that nature left to itself needs the human to come in and help manage you know the the whole there's an awful lot of conversation right now about how mankind is the evil on the planet and if we just left things alone everything mm-hmm. would be good but i really believe that we are the managers of the Garden of Eden. Mm. And each of our pieces of property, you know, the area that we farm ought to be our garden uh-huh. that we manage, that we make and improve, that we can then pass on to our children. And the, I know that the farming that we're doing, the land is improving, and that what we pass on to our kids is going to be way better than what we got when we first started off. Yeah. Oh, Just yeah. they do in Europe. And unfortunately, not the way that the conventional farming is happening. That land is being ruined, Yeah. Uh, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, as we were kind of talking through the animal part, I realized what I wanted to ask you earlier, and that is, you know, for, for those of us that live in urban areas, what kind of tactics, what kind of things can we do in this arena to, all right, let's say, reduce my chicken feed? Ah, um, oh, yeah, those are great questions. Yeah. We like to say that, you know, you could improve our country's food sources and our landfills at the same time just by requiring everybody to have two chickens for each person in the household. Yeah. And cycle all their house scraps yep. to those chickens. But, you, you know, I've I've been keeping I've been, I've been keeping tabs on all the poultry Locks that I have, I come in contact with more than you might think mm-hmm. over the last number of years because I'm noticing a decline in things like um, animal body weight and and productivity and longevity. And one of the things that's consistent is that those little home flocks that are you know no bigger than say two chickens, maybe three uh-huh. per member of the household, are so frequently the best managed, the yeah. best fed, and yep. the best producing flocks out there. And I, I think it has a lot to do with the alternate sources that that are available to anybody who keeps a tiny flock. You know, if you think about yeah. the scraps that leave your kitchen, yep. you know, in the compost bucket or taken down to the chickens, they'll go a long way among six. Yeah, They don't really touch much if you have two dozen chickens out there. Right. And one of the effects that I think that's having on the little home flock is that they're eating less of, uh, most people are using um, genetically modified corn soy crumbles. Right. Staying mash for their chickens. But 
if the chi- the chickens will always opt for the real food before the dang mash, and yep. if there's sufficient real food, they're not eating much of that genetically modified stuff. Right. And I think that has something to do with the high level of productivity. There oh, are lots yeah. of things that are available in the home garden for chickens that would be hard to raise on a large scale, but are very easy to raise on a small scale. Oh, like, like what? Um, sunflower seeds. Black oh. sunflower seeds are excellent chicken food. Mm-hmm. Field peas are any kind of beans. Our chickens gobble them up and just got them. And uh, even and even just pasturing. So creating a simple movable pin mm-hmm. that still allows them to have a nesting box and stuff uh-huh. like that. It, it can be made very simply, and you're moving those chickens around as opposed to, I mean, we've got both things. We've got a movable trailer up at the Sisters, and then where we are at home, we have a permanent chicken coop. Uh-huh. And all around that permanent chicken coop, that they really scratch it up and beat it up. But on the movable pins, they're only in it for a, a certain amount of time, you know, in that area, and they just don't do the damage. And no, they're, getting, they're getting something from that grass. Oh, yeah. Not a lot of nutrition, but some. And they're fertilizing right. wherever they're going. You can always figure out where we last had the portable coop, which is a, a chicken house on wheels that uh-huh. we put electric netting around. You can always tell by where the darkest green spots are in the pasture. Right. And Lawn grass, lawn clippings are make just as good chicken food as as our big pastures do. I mean, I think what one of the things that the urban uh, we we're getting ready to develop maybe a second book or uh-huh. at least some talks, and one of the first things we want to do is get people to get rid of the model they have currently for what a farm should look like, or even in an urban setting, what a lawn should look like. Oh, yes. And a lawn that's pastured is not going to be the perfect lawn that a lawnmower does. Exactly. But it is going to be much healthier. Much more interesting. Much more interesting. Mm-hmm. And and it will be feeding you back as opposed to just feeding John Deere or... Other, other foods for chickens, alternate foods for chickens. Um, who knew that one of the common household chicken foods was boiled potato peels while well, households were were um, um, generating lots of potato peels right. because that was the standard American food. And those, um, there's a passage somewhere in uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder, famous for her books for mm-hmm. children, was actually the poster child for the Missouri State Extension poultry. She She wrote columns on poultry she wrote extensive yep. bulletins on poultry mm-hmm. and she was the number one flocks woman in the state of missouri and i just remember a passage where she's talking about something else and she refers to the fact that she's got potato peels boiling on the stove for the chickens nice winter squash make excellent chicken food yeah. the seeds are natural natural they are oh, a natural yeah. wormer so you feed them and you get that side isn't it isn't you know, it just amazing butcher, you know isn't what just, meat left over from the butcher. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Isn't it just amazing what nature brings? I mean, seeds that are natural dewormers. Yeah. Yeah, no right. Not, no only, not only that, Greg, they are ripe in the fall, right, when you want to deworm your animals mm-hmm. before they go into winter quarters. It's The synchronicity begs you to ask, is there a planner behind all this? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> not to get rid of this on you, but it does make you wonder, gosh, you'd think somebody had worked this thing out ahead of time. Ahead of time. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, well, thank you so much for those. 
That was uh, amazing. So what do you consider your biggest success? We're so excited about how all of these elements work together. The, The cow to provide the food that's coming from the grass, and then the pig as the storage, and then the chicken as the cleanup crew. That uh-huh. goes through and, and dethatches and cleans. You know, again, these are things that I think all farmers used to know. And we're so excited that we've been stumbling upon them and finding out how successful yeah. this, how these work together. Mm-hmm. And we, we want everybody to know <laughs> nice. so that they'll try and recreate it in their own small way. Yeah. Right. For us, for us, the big success was when we realized that farming wasn't a matter of, you know, if you can afford it, you buy a little place in the country where you can mm-hmm. afford to keep chickens and pigs and maybe a room in it or two and a big garden. But that the model of all civilized mankind up until 100 years ago was that the majority of people raised the majority of their food and did something else, but not not the 40 hours you know, drudgery that an awful lot of people conceive, you know, maybe not in the beginning, but after a while conceive their own work lives yeah. to be. Yeah. This, this farming based solely on the sunlight and rainfall that lands on a piece of land, mm-hmm. you know, which can be managed by humans with the help of the animals and plants that are native or domestic on that land, that sort of farming not only doesn't cost a lot of money, but the benefits that it generates are so far beyond, you know, you mentioned, isn't it neat, how, you know, cucurbit seeds are, are wormers. Yeah. That's such a great aha. Well, the, the number of, of benefits of that kind, you, after a while you stop trying to keep track. Track them, yeah. Because you think, oh, my gosh, this all fits together like... Like it's, like supposed, it's supposed to. supposed to work. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. right. And it, it enables us to fill our time with things we want to do and to spend less time yeah. doing cash-producing things that yeah. don't matter as much to and, us. And milking a cow twice a day and all the farming chores that go along with that really helps you focus on what's important in life. Yeah. You're much less distracted by all the other things that are going on, mm-hmm. the, you know, yeah. yeah, not to get too romantic on you, but, you know, just walking down the pasture today to shift a fence for some cows, I stepped across some chicory flower that's a little late, you know, that's a summer flower, uh-huh. and it was just opening even though it was evening because it's in a shaded spot, and it was this deep purple, and I thought, my yeah. gosh, that color is so ravishingly beautiful, yeah. and would I have time, and would I you know, be in the right place at the right time for that if I wasn't doing chores faithfully every day. Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. Or if you've been sitting at a desk all day. Oh, that's right. right. That's right. <laughs> so I, I taught for 25 years, yeah. and uh, I was real happy to leave that and farm. Yeah. So what drives you? Love of the work. Yeah. It's funny because wherever you go and talk to farmers, gardeners, urban chicken keepers it it seems as though in the end for all of us love is the word that comes Mm -hmm. out as being Mm -hmm. why do we do this we do this because we love this 
yeah. um, in Forrest Pritchard's book, Gaining Ground, he talks about going to a meeting of farmers and whoever was leading the discussion said, you know, why are we all here? And the answer resoundingly was, because we love to farm. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And, and I, I really think that we have an obligation, a duty to make our world better. And I yeah. think people do that in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. In downtown, they do it through helping people. But I really do think that the land is, has been lost recently. As that, That's a valid thing to do, too, is make the land better. Because we're so busy in conventional farming making... I, I'm, somebody said recently at a conference that we were at that we're not going to be farming... The way that they're farming now, mm-hmm. they're not going to be able to continue farming that way in 50 years. No. And I'm a little bit spooked that that's absolutely right. Oh, yeah. What do you do when you have spoiled the land so badly yep. and these people are farming 10,000 acres... Yep. And that it was interesting. We were hearing somebody. It was a number of of, of um, brothers, mm-hmm. and one did the far did the animals, and one did the uh, did the pesticide spray, and then one did the pesticide and the herbicide spray. spray, and that's all he did. Was wow. he was in control of all that? That's not sustainable. Right. That is not going to be able to go on for forever. Right. And what happens to those ten thousand acres? Because rolling it back to more of what we're doing. That's going to be hard to do on a 10,000-acre plot. Yeah. And, and I think then that sort of answers what drives us. What drives us to farm is that we love it. What drives us to speak and write is that we're passionate to tell other yeah. people, look, it doesn't matter what the piece of land is. If, you're, if you've got dirt, you can start. You can start it's now with a yeah. garden and a pair of chickens and make that spot, small as it may be, it will grow in fertility in drought resistance, in its ability to sustain flood, in its in its overall overall resilience and health, mm-hmm. it will grow every year when managed with animals and plants in the way that they interact naturally yeah. to create and store fertility. Beautiful, beautiful. So, I am all about education, and I have to know: is there one book that has been influential for you in this process? Well. Uh, everything that Wendell Berry ever wrote. Oh gosh! <laughs> yeah. So we would say, Wendell, just read, pick up any Wendell Berry okay. and start reading it, and yeah. that is, he he says it better than anybody does. But but bef- sometimes before we can we can understand the philosophy philosophy of a thing, we have to understand some of the practice. And I would say that um, the early books about intensive grazing, especially Joel Salatin's two of his very early books, Pastured Poultry Prophets and Salad Bar Beast. Even though in an urban setting you're not looking at doing anything on the scale he's doing it, those books are so full of the of the encouragement mm-hmm. that we got early in the intensive rotational grazing movement before I'm I'm afraid sometimes what you run into is people have gotten so scientific about it that the beginner is is flooded with yeah. information he can't use. Right. Cow it's days and much. total digestive to, to, and total di- and digestible nutrients right. yeah. and yeah. and terms that aren't helpful to him where that early encouraging um, prose 
like Salatin, where he says there's no bad intention, intensive grazing. There's only good and better. Oh, um, nice. Get them out there. Keep them moving. And watch how you transform the landscape. Yeah. Those, books, those books are well worth checking out and reading and keeping on the bedstand. So and and I'm, not, I'm big on, on TV and YouTube and stuff like that, but there are some really good YouTube things out there. Uh, Greg Judy's got some really good mm-hmm. um, Farm. video stuff. Then there's the Soil Carbon Cowboys or something like that. And, and beautiful is, is um, the TED Talk by Alan Savory on desertification. Oh, yes. Um, whether, whether you're whether you think global warming is real or is a lie made up by the liberal media or whatever you might think about it, just put that aside and think environmental degradation yeah, exactly. instead of global warming and watch that movie. Yeah. Yeah. And the Pope's book, uh, oh. or the Pope's letter to, Oh, to yeah, the world. and Care of Our Common Home is brilliant. Yeah, it's, really, it's a really wonderful challenge. Cool. And I have to give a plug for Elliot Coleman. Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, especially four-season gardening, oh, four-season yes. harvest. Four season, four season harvest yeah. and yeah. Um, winter harvest handbook. Those are those are incredibly helpful books. Yeah. So, what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? My my advice is is always jump in, jump in with kind of a reckless abandon. <laughs> uh, don't don't worry about trying to learn everything before you do it. Mm-hmm. Just jump and let the you know, it's going to cost you a little bit of money to invest in some animals, and then some of them are going to die. Yep. But jump in and let your let that experience be your classroom. Learn from them. But the whole, I don't know if I should. I'm kind of hesitant. <laughs> you got to get past that yep. and just jump. Just go. And then it. related to that, I I like to tell people, you know, the farmers and the vets will use certain phrases like they'll say you got animals you're going to have problems or you keep livestock you're going to have dead stock and that's that's actually Hmm. much more encouraging than it sounds when you're looking down at your own dead animal but the step that needs to come after that link to sean's you know sort of generous abandon is i'd like to tell people this system works natural systems like grazing and rest cycles like feeding natural foods to animals and expecting mm-hmm. that in the end, despite the fact that maybe genetically right now they're not hardwired to thrive the way in natu- a natural system. As you keep working with them, you're going to select for the better offspring. Mm-hmm. What you need to remember is this system works, so whatever disaster you're looking at, you need to believe in the system even more than you believe in the dead animal at your feet or yeah. in the in the decaying zucchini squash uh-huh. or the blight blackened tomatoes, believe that the system works and keep trying. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Sean and Beth. It has been a treat getting to chat with you. Well, it was a delight to, to share this and a delight to talk to you. It's thank been you. a huge pleasure. Thank you, thank you. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? We keep a blog, One Cow Revolution at WordPress. So onecowrevolution.wordpress.com will okay. get you to our blog where Perfect. we post, not daily, but frequently, events, less, less just our daily events than our little aha moments mm. about something mm-hmm. that worked 
or our, our low moment, something that's not working. Yeah. Um, and that's usually a good way to get us. Um, we respond to all comments. There aren't that many. So Perfect. if you really want to get hold of us, that's, that's the a good way, way to get it. Fantastic. Uh-huh. Again, their book is The Independent Farmstead, Growing Soil, Biodiversity, and Nutrient-Dense Food with Grass-Fed Animals and Intensive Pasture Management. Again, thank you so much. And that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Thanks so much, Greg. Thank you. Decades ago, I started growing food in my front and backyard, and I realized that my mission in life is to inspire and empower others to grow their own nutrient-dense, healthy, organic food. Because of this, a lot of people have come to me with their gardening questions over the years. And that got me thinking, what if we put together a community that would help budding gardeners blossom? So I finally made the idea a reality with my Urban Farm U member program. Each month, your membership includes three live online events, a monthly class, a chit-chat with an expert, and a monthly coaching session, plus access to the experts on our member page and a significant discount on our signature courses. I'm deeply committed to transforming our global food system, and I do this by empowering you to grow your own food. The Urban Farm Membership Program is a simple way to get going. Please join me in transforming your food system today. To learn more, go to urbanfarmmembership.org or text membership to 33444. That's urbanfarmmembership.org or text membership to 33444. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, Head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.